women control 80% of the purchase decisions. Still, we don't see what we want to buy in the world because VCs are managing that pipeline of the things that end up getting into the world. That's why investing in portfolio is like a statement because we invest in things we want to see in the world. Hi, Money Movers. I am thrilled and energized for our next guest, Juliana Garaysar. She is La Jefa de Greentown Labs. She's passionate about climate tech. She is one of the lead investors in Portfolio. She sits on the board of ACA, and she is just such an incredible woman and fierce fearless leader. So I'm super, super excited about this interview and you sharing your story and all of the trails that you have blazed and that you're going to continue to for the future of this next generation and of our daughters. Thank you, Stacey. It really means a lot. Congratulations on your show. I know it's already been amazing. So I'm really honored to be here and share my story with you. Thank you. So can you start from the beginning? We had a conversation in Chicago at the Angeles Investor Summit. That was over a margarita, though. So I just wanted to put it out there. (laughs) Well, I knew after that conversation, I was like, oh, my gosh, you've got to be on her money moves. I said the title of this episode is Born to Disrupt. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) It's pretty crazy how serendipity and sometimes things that happen to you that you think are a little bit like awkward end up like leading you through different paths. So. I'm from Spain. I'm originally from Bilbao. So Bilbao is this place very close to the French border. And my mom is a teacher, a high school teacher. So when she told me you're going to school with mama, I thought we were going to go and do that. I was in pre-kindergarten and I went to her school. She happened to work there full time. And I was in kindergarten when she was teaching high schoolers. And every time I would see her, I would be like crying because I wanted to be with her. And one of the kindergartners' teachers, she was like, shut up or you're never going to see your mom. And that's when I decided to get my lunchbox and hit her in the head. (laughs) My mom felt so embarrassed that she crossed the backyard of the school. And the school in front was the French school that was really new school. They were accepting anybody because now there are a lot more like you need to have some French roots or be related or have a connection there. But because they were very new, they accepted me there and I ended up learning French and being very open to different cultures. I did my high school in France and then my last year of university. And that's one of the reasons why I ended up in Singapore. So, yeah, this is how things happen in life. Wow. So you've had such a rich global journey. Yeah, I think when you learn a different language from a very early age and you live in a border place and with very different cultures, you learn to be very much open to diversity and trying to become a bridge. And I think that's what I've been doing my whole career. And so what led you to where you are today? That's a great question. So I think the beginning of my career, I really got enamored with tech. At first, my career was all about international, which still is. I feel like I'm a global citizen. And I was lucky to have my first job in Singapore at the Spanish Trade Commission. And I would do the bilateral work that Spain, Singapore needed. And it was really good. But then I felt like I wanted to stay in Asia because there was so much to learn. And my tenure was coming to an end. So I had 
had to go back to Spain and I wanted to stay. I was lucky to be hired by Citigroup that was leading all the technology for credit cards globally from Singapore and they needed a project manager for Latin America. So I ended up doing a lot of trips to Latin America from Singapore. Wow. So really, and then I... That's a long flight. (laughs) I know. Then I ended up going to Spain, to Greece to do the Mm. development there and ended up in Japan. So it was a great learning process about how big banks work and different offices. But I still felt I was not impactful enough that kind of was something that I felt very clearly. I didn't know what I wanted to do to have a more impact than just big organization pawn. So I decided to discover it, doing my MBA. And of course, since I still was very global, I went to do it at London Business School. It's one of the most global programs. And when I was there, I did an exchange program in Berkeley to go and see Silicon Valley. And that's when I was totally hooked by the entrepreneurial bug, the venture bug, trying to figure out the venture side and the entrepreneurial side. And after the MBA, it was hired to run an incubator and their angel network and their VC funds in the French Riviera. So that's how I moved from London to the French Riviera. And the French Riviera is very international too. There's a lot of people from all over the world who ended up living there. And I was lucky that most of my angels were coming from somewhere else and they also wanted to invest in their home countries. And then When they saw the impact that our networks and our funds had, they wanted to create their own angel networks in their own countries. So I ended up helping create angel networks in Istanbul, in Bahrain, in Ireland, in Chile. So it was a a lot of fun. I ended up coming to Houston because of my husband. I met my husband in Singapore and then we coincidentally met in London to our MBA and after he finished his MBA, when I was in the French Riviera, he was working for Shell in The Hague in the Netherlands. And then he got a promotion to move to Houston. And I decided to leave everything behind and move to Houston 13 years ago. That's how I ended up here. Well, wow. And so after moving to Houston, how did you get embed yourself? Oh, my. In- that was very tough. Most of my network was in Asia and Europe. Some of my members were from the U.S. and they had moved to the French Riviera. I had some connections there, but really nothing. I had to start from scratch. I also became a mom. I moved to Houston when I was almost eight months pregnant. So I had never lived with my husband. I had a career that I had to abandon in Europe and I was to become a new mom. It was a full leap of faith. It was like, this is where my heart is. This is where I feel that growth is as a person and potentially as a professional, because that's where VC started. So I thought, like, we will figure it out. And that's what happened. I tried to make sure that my network would be still global. And if I ever had to move again with Shell, because when we moved to Houston, we were expats and we were only supposed to be in Houston for three years, renewable to four, but that was it. So for me, it was very difficult to feel like, okay, what am I going to do if after three years or four, I have to restart from scratch in another country? So I decided to join the Kaufman Fellows Program. It's a leadership program in venture capital. It's global. So I thought, well, I don't want to start from scratch. If I ever have to move somewhere else, at least the the fellowship can help me. And so I was doing it for two years. And at the same time, I was hired by the Houston Angel Network. So I was working for them for five years and we became the most active angel network in the U.S. Uh, So that was great. 
And during the fellowship, well, I learned more about venture capital, but also I experienced, I started experiencing that we're different. Even the fellowship with all of the diversity initiatives they had, I still felt that as a woman in VC, we didn't have the same opportunities as the male fellows. And I felt it very clearly. After two-year fellowship, you always have to do an end-of-fellowship program or project that is like you're wrapping your fellowship with a bow. And some people have like your dissertation. Books. When you some people have launched companies. Some people have launched incubators. And you need to feel very passionate about what you do because otherwise the project doesn't have legs, right? So they ask you to think very hard about what you want to do as final project. And I wish procrastinating, I don't know, maybe international network or a global network of angels, but you know, I wouldn't get to start. I was like, when you procrastinate, you know that something is wrong because it's like, maybe you're not motivated enough. And suddenly during my fellowship, I met with Trish Costello, who's the founder of Portfolio. She was about to create Portfolio. I want to met her. Trish was actually the one who created the program. She spun it out of the Kaufman Foundation, and she was the first CEO for the Kaufman Fellows. And she told me, I want Was that her special project after? Was it Portfolio? She was managing the fellowship, but after she decided to move on from that, she wanted to create something that would make a difference in the women's world. And she created Portfolio, a platform of funds that would be mainly led by women and would invest mainly in women and diversity, but with the goal of democratizing access for women to early stage investing and to venture. And I know you are an investor there. Very proud. And it's like educational. And of course you invest and you get great returns and you get to be very involved in the process, not only from pitch, but also selection to due diligence and negotiation. But I think it's more than that. It's really a movement for empowerment of women. You give them not only access to all of that, you really empower them to have a seat at the table to say like, because I know all this now, I feel I belong and I can go ahead and create my own funds or create my angel groups or become who you're supposed to be. So that was really instrumental for me. When I met her, I decided to study further the gender gap in investing and why it is happening. So I, my end project was about studying that. And of course, the solution that I found to all this research was actually Portfolio and their first ever fund that we created called Rising Tide. And that was the end of my dissertation. This is the model. This is a very much smaller ticket size for new investors to be able to invest in early stage companies and democratizing that access and that empowerment that women need. And it's been a blast. It's been seven, eight years already. We got an award last year or this year. This year, yeah, in Chicago. From in Chicago where we were together with Angeles Investors. And I think it's the second time they get that award. So it's been a blast. And all that while I was... Making real meaningful impact. Totally. I think after the Houston Angel Network, well, I started doing portfolio too on the side. I decided to work for a fund because that was my goal in my career, work for not only create the sidecar funds that an angel network may have, but really work for a big fund. And, you know, the the Texas Medical Center wanted to open one. So I was helping with that. And then I ended up running it. But then I realized that for my whole career, that was my main goal, to try to break into the world of venture and fitting in with a lot of venture people who, of course, will be mostly white male and how I would never feel I belonged there and how I always felt that 
uh, there was bias. There was bias towards the women entrepreneurs who would pitch to them, towards the female members of those groups. And I then realized maybe I don't want to fit in anymore, but I want to create our own ways of doing things. That's our, right. Like I said, you were born to disrupt. Yeah. I'm, like, right? I'm coming in and I'm disrupting this. <laughs> yes. And I think that's the beauty of the United States, where it's like, if you don't like it, just build your own Do thing. Do something about it. Yes. Yeah. And it's that is something that I feel that maybe in some other countries is not like that doesn't happen like that. And I feel very blessed to be able to be here and create all this amazing platforms. So with Portfolio, we've already at, I think, 13 different funds and all of them have done so well. And the one of I'm most proud of, of course, is the Rising America one and two funds that are the first ever funds to be led by five women of colors, two Latinas, Nora Mecadena, Inele and myself, and then three African-Americans. And of course, is the best performing fund because we invest in underrepresented founders and we also invest in solutions that are helping bridge the racial gap. So really, really super proud about that one. And I've always done these things. And then it well, was I wanted like, to say, you know, with Portfolio, one yes. of the unique things is there's not a lot of venture capital firms mm. who are investing in aging care and yes. femtech and yeah. things that we need. That was where I feel like this is the movement. And that is actually the thesis behind my fellows end of fellowship project. It is like at the end of the day, you have two options. Okay. The statistics we already know we don't want to get there. They're abysmal. It's depressing. Okay. So what do you do? Because you can either hope and wait till Silicon Valley just wakes up and decides to hire more diverse GPs, which can take forever because they say that it's a pipeline problem. It's not a pipeline problem. It's a network problem they have. Yeah. Or we can just take matters into our own hands and become the investors. So that's where the low-hanging fruit lies in the smaller investors, in activating these people who want to make a difference. And sometimes you can make a difference with very little money. Because there's so much, so much change. If you put all together, if you bundle all these instruments that we have, every dollar counts. That's a portfolio model that is activating more investors. And then once we started doing it in a generic way with rising tide, we started figuring out verticals where it really even made more sense because they were totally overlooked sectors because the buyers were not the same as the GPs. Mm -hmm. And women control 80% of the purchase decisions. Still, we don't see what we want to buy in the world because VCs are managing that pipeline, right? Of the things that end up getting into the world. That's why investing in portfolio, it's like a statement because we invest in the things we want to see in the world. And that's why industries like Femtech, portfolio created the first ever Femtech fund. And now we are raising Femtech 3. Amazing. Active aging. We live longer. We need to have the right resources and products to have a, a beautiful standard of living. And again, we are raising for active aging too. The markets for Latinos and African-Americans and LGBTQ are thriving. There's so much opportunity. We created Rising America. So from a generic approach, we started seeing the verticals where we saw value and we created specific funds for that. Like, of course, food and ag tech is another one where women understand a lot about nutrition. 
green and sustainability. Of course, we care a lot about that. And that's what we ended up doing. Amazing. And money movers, you can invest in portfolio too. And it's only a minimum 10,000. Correct. And you can even do less than that if you really have a passion and you're not an accredited investor. You can come and we can figure out a way for you to not only invest, it could be through even your parents. There's a lot of couples who invest and a lot of uh, father-daughter combos. And sometimes they are not even in the same city, but they use the portfolio pitch call to engage. So there's a lot of beautiful stories there. But definitely, it's not only about portfolio. There's many other great angel groups out there and many other funds that are lowering the barriers of entry, which I think is one of the biggest hurdles. And they work also on the educational side of things so that a lot of new investors can come in. And that's the goal, right? Activate and take matters into your own hands also for your career. I think we're talking about our daughters, right? One of the things I want to teach my daughter from very early on is how to invest and also how to live your life as a portfolio approach life. And I think that's something that a lot of people have told me, you need to excel at something and do it really well and be a total, I don't know how to say it, but you know, expert expert SME in a very narrow focus Mm -hmm. area. And for me, I've always been all over. And yeah, I, I mean, I've, that gets boring. You know? I love being a generalist and everybody's like, oh, but you know, you're all over the place. And I'm like, innovation happens when you connect things. And if you only know about one thing, you're stuck in a box, right? And I realized that I lead my life as a portfolio, like I do with my investments. And that has helped me a lot make the decisions I wanted to make when I decided to leave places like the Houston Angel Network or the Texas Medical Center Venture Fund because I felt that I could add a lot more value somewhere else. And I didn't want to wait till a lot of people, a lot of women wait till they have the next job lined up to leave a place where maybe they've grown or something like that. And sometimes that means that in general, you tend to overstay. Yes, but if, I did that. 22 years is yeah, too long. Yeah, and it's and, and that's <laughs> People why don't the, do that nowadays. The you know, feeling I, trapped I, that you mentioned, right? The feeling trapped like I'm a woman, I'm mid-career, I don't feel I'm undervalued, I don't feel I'm fitting in, yet I don't have the financial freedom to step out of this role and figure out what I want to do next. But if you start investing when you're young, of course, the compounded value of money, but also you start living your life hedging your bets and you don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's what we tend to do as women. And everything is career, career, career. And maybe we're not getting where we deserve to be. If you have all the things in your life, and I'm not only talking about financial security, but all the things that make you happy. If you ever have to let go of one of these legs of your life, of your stool or whatever it is, it it suddenly, not everything crumbles. Because I feel like as women, we feel so identified with our job that if we don't have that or our diploma, because we don't give ourselves enough value sometimes and we need to have all these diplomas, all these titles attached to us so that we feel that there's value to what we do. 
And I think it's about time that we step on our own ownership instead of being just an employee, being an owner, owner of share, owner of things, instead of just doing philanthropy. Be the CEO of your life. Totally. Instead of just doing philanthropy, they're investing and multiplying and enabling more. I think there's so much taboo about financial literacy. Some people are like scared. Women are scared of money. They are scared of numbers. How many times have you heard about women saying like, oh, I'm not a numbers person. That part of it for someone is like, if you want to be an entrepreneur investor, you need to know your numbers in and out and you need to dig deep. And if you don't know your numbers, you're leaving the control of your life to someone Someone else. else. Yep. So women in STEM, that is critical. From when you're six year old, teachers start already promoting girls in a different way. They are very encouraging of boys to fail and try. And girls become this perfectionist that feel like, oh, they don't belong in STEM because they don't have the same approach. And even this bias already, at six years old, girls understand that they're not going to be able to reach and that they're different and that they're treated differently and that maybe the expectations they have should be lower. That is when they understand. Maybe they don't understand, but they start feeling the difference. And that's where we really need to act. My girl is seven and I'm like going for it, saying like, you need to understand your numbers because that's when you decide, yeah, I leave a job or I leave a husband or I own my own finance. And when I do that, I can take the decisions I want in the world. So you thank you for sharing your incredible journey, how you're just have this in you like you've got it this like fearless boldness but I think it's easy to say this but I've got a lot of battle scars from trying to fit in and realizing that it's not happening and I'm like okay how do I navigate this and at the end of the day it's a trial and error it's trying to make sure that you're seen and if you don't have a seat at the table you create your own table and once you start doing that it's about lifting everybody with you because once you hit a critical mass, nobody can stop you. That's right. So can you share with our audience, what are you dreaming bigger about these days? Ooh, okay. So I think I started dreaming very big about climate. That's something that I'm very passionate about. I think the fact that you have small kids is like what kind of world they're going to inherit from us. I went on this trip to Chile to see an amazing glacier and Literally five days after I went back, I saw it like disintegrating to the lake. Half of it was gone, the Glacier of Grey in in Patagonia. So I'm like, this needs to stop. So when I was asked to be employee number one for Greentown Labs, and which is the biggest climate incubator in America, and bring it to Houston from its headquarters in, in Boston and to do its first ever expansion, I was like, this is something that I want to do. This is impactful, bringing an organization like that to Houston. And I knew it would be disruptive. Now it's you have a big building with 80 startups thriving and you think that it was pretty obvious. But when I started, it was not. I don't think Houston was still ready for it. And the pandemic hit, so we had to fundraise and it was tough. But I had the conviction that that's what Houston needed. And I'm so glad that I did it. So climate and diversity are two of the areas. I would say climate and inclusion are my two passions. And I think I've been doing them a little bit in parallel, right, with running Green Town Labs and then becoming the chief development investment officer. 
and then doing portfolio and these other things for diversity and inclusion. And now I'm launching Malika. Malika Ventures is this one that finally puts both together. So I don't feel like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's more like a holistic approach to what I do. That so I'm really wonderful. excited about that. I'm excited too. Yes. I started bringing more EDIJ or DEI or diversity, equity, and inclusion and justice to Greentown. And we started creating an accelerator called Excel for underrepresented founders. And that was very successful. Uh, we did our cohort one and we had amazing results. And we did it with uh, Browning the Green Space, which is a partner out of Boston that helped us create the program. And then, of course, we had plenty of conversation with Kerry Bowie, who is the founder of Browning the Green Space, about we're doing great with this accelerator program. Our companies are getting investment ready, but where are the funds? You that's know? a good question that's always out there, especially for women and underrepresented founders. Mm -hmm. Where are the funds? You might have all the investment readiness in the world and do all these magazine accelerators. It's great, but still they are not enough investing in underrepresented founders. And Carrie and I are like, if there's nothing there, let's create it. And that's what we've done. And we actually got a grant from VC Include and their Climate Justice Initiative. That's how we got started. And then they invited us to their acceleration program and we just graduated last week. And I feel like this is getting traction and I, I think the sky is the limit. That is exceptional. <laughs> Very excited to learn more and see the progress. Yes, I am part of the City of Houston Women's Commission. Very honored and they have amazing working groups and some of them are focused on domestic violence. I'm, of course, in the one for small businesses and entrepreneurs. There's a lot of great work that's done and, and a lot of research. And part of the research that I discovered through my connection there with the City of Houston Women's Commission is the revenue gap between white male and African-American and, of course, Latinos. But then the gender gap in terms of revenue between the different races and the different genders. So, of course, there's a revenue gap or salary gap everywhere for men and women. But the most pronounced one is for Latinos and Latinas. Even bigger, the gap is bigger than for African-American male and African-American women. And I really believe it's because of this culture where the roles are so defined in the Hispanic culture where the men like handles the money and, and in general, the women handle the household the and, and they don't want to know, or I don't even think they don't want to know. The expectation is that you don't need to know. You don't need to know yes. and don't question me. Correct. And that hurts us so much. And I see it with even my godmother-in-law, she widowed a couple of years ago. She didn't know where the money was, where the credit cards were. And it's like, why didn't I learn? My husband always told me, like, he would take care of everything. You don't have to worry about this. And now what? We do ourselves such a disservice. So I think I was blown away by the statistics because it's even worse than all of them, that the gap is bigger. And I think it's because of that cultural way of doing and dealing with who does what. And I want to make sure that I point the awareness there because financial literacy is even more important for Latinas than 
ever. Yes, and that's critical. one of the reasons why with Portfolio Rising America, we have invested in Suma Wealth that is educating Latinos in financial literacy and goal setter, all the fintech companies that are bringing awareness because we are the biggest consumers in so many things like TV, anything that has to do with entertainment, food and clothes, but then we don't take care of our, our own finances and we put ourselves in the worst positions ever. So if I had to raise awareness, I wanted to end with that. Si se puede. Mira tu dinero. <laughs> sí. <laughs> Thanks again, mm -hmm. Juliana. And we'll be watching out for your fund, making sure we also support Portfolio and be aware, but also take action, do something about it. It is yeah. financial literacy is its cornerstone. It's one of the most critical things that we need to have a grasp and understanding of. And if there's something you don't know, have the curiosity to learn. And that's part of the reason why we started this show. So there's a nerdy thing that I saw on LinkedIn that really epitomizes the power of compounding things, right? And I was like, wow, this is so true. So let me see if I can say it right. So there was like 0, 0.00 exponential, I don't know, 3000, it's zero. 0 0.001 exponential, the same 3,000, and it was like a pretty sizable amount. So that means that every little thing that you think, what is the difference between a 0 0.001 and a zero? It's nothing, right? So when you feel powerless, because it's like, my money doesn't count, my voice doesn't count, my opinion doesn't count, if you compound it, if you compound it with the effect of time, or if you compound it with the effect of a community, a familia, then this little thing really makes a difference. So when you feel powerless, feel time is in, on your side. So do something because time is going to help you, mainly when you're investing, time is your biggest ally. But also your network is your net worth. So, and I think Stacey, you're doing an amazing job not only with a podcast, but with everything you're doing with Dream Ventures to make this family happen and flourish. Thank you, Helena.